James chapter three, and we're gonna read verses one through 12. In honor of God's word, uh, will you read this with me? It says this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Would you pray with me as we begin? God, we pray this morning that you would be glorified in our worship, that you would be glorified in our unity, in our love for one another. There are all kinds of different ways that we intend to worship you this morning. We do so through uh, our interaction with one another, through our love for each other. We, we worship you, God, through our study of your word, by attuning our ears and our hearts to your voice and allowing your spirit to speak in conjunction with what you have declared in the scriptures. We worship you through the singing of your praise. We worship you as we submit to you in prayer, as we speak to you in prayer, God, as we call out to you. We are utterly and totally dependent upon you. We love you, and we pray that you would be honored in our time as we worship you together this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, you guys can have a seat right where you're at. Well, we're in the midst of a series uh, called The Proverbial Life, and this morning, uh, the subject of my, uh, of my message is proverbial speech, what we say. Uh, not necessarily what we just say sort of auditorily with our mouths, but what communication comes out of us. And the, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about speech. In fact, it's one of the things that is most prominently spoken of again and again and again. Listen, we realize that from the beginning of human history, as recorded in God's Word, that speech has always had power. Words have always had power. In fact, in Genesis chapter one, in detailing the creation of the earth, we see that God spoke it into existence. That nothing existed, and yet in Genesis chapter one, verse three, and you don't have to turn there, but Genesis one, three, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1, 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Genesis 1, 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. Verse 11, God said, let the earth spout vegetation and plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit and which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. God spoke these things and they happened. There's power in words. There's power in speech. God forms and shapes the earth by his voice. He forms and shapes the earth with his speech. And not only that, but you and I who were created in his image, you and I, men and women who were formed in his image, formed to be a replication or an image bearer of what God is like, we also are given power in our speech. In fact, in Genesis chapter two, 
right away God gives man responsibility. He says, I want you to name all the animals and whatever you call them, that's what they will be called. Now for me, I'll be honest with you, there are a lot of animals I'd have called something different if God had given me the chance, right? There are a lot of things I would have chosen, maybe slightly different than the ways that Adam named the animals, but what? He spoke their names into existence. God gives man, as a representative image of who he is, (coughs) God gives man power in his words and in his speech. All throughout the Bible we see this power. And we know that, right? We know that practically, experientially. You know that words have power. Words have power in your life. There are moments you can probably think of even as we begin this morning where people have spoken things to you that have been life-giving or have been joy-giving, things that have made you laugh or that have lifted your heart. But you can probably also remember times where people have spoken things to you that brought sorrow or brought pain or brought grief or insecurity or fear, or doubt, right? I remember um, when, my, when my boys were really little, my older boys, Jack and Hank, we were living at Hume Lake, and one night after they'd gone to bed, I hear this blood-curdling scream upstairs. And so I, uh, I ran upstairs to see what was happening with my kids, because I thought maybe you know, one of them had been stabbed. If you have boys, you know, sometimes stabbings happen, and so... Uh, <laughs> Is that just my family? What, it's fine, whatever. So I ran upstairs uh, to see what was happening, and I run into the boys' room. They have bunk beds there. Hank's on the bottom bunk. Hank was probably three at the time, and he's sobbing, crying, you know, just like, uh, just absolutely distraught. And I said, Hank, what's going on? Are you hurt? Like, are you cut? Do we need to go to the hospital? Like, what's, what's going on? Why did you scream? And he, when he finally catches his breath, Hank looks at me, and he goes, he goes, Jack said that I'm gonna eat my own head. And uh, I thought about it for a second. And I said to Hank, I said, bro, your mouth is in your head. So you see why your fear is illogical? I tried to reason with him, right? I tried to reason with him. Like, it's not possible for you to eat your own head scientifically because your face has your mouth, it's on your head. You can't, it wouldn't be possible. You couldn't do that, you know? But there was no way to reason with him. His older brother had told him, you are gonna eat your own head. And he was mortified, the power of words, Right? There wasn't any truth in it. There wasn't any accuracy. But Hank was distraught because of what his brother had said. All throughout the book of Proverbs. I mean, there are more verses in the book of Proverbs than we have time this morning to even look at. But again and again and again, the writer has said that we as created beings have to consider what we say. We have to consider our speech. We have to consider the power of it and the influence that it has on other people. I'll just give you a couple examples of this this morning. We'll put them on the screens. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11 says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. God created the heavens and the earth with his voice. And Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11 says that you and I, that our, our voice, our speech can be a fountain of life as well in the lives of other people. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 9 says, With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. The mouth has the power of destruction, it says in Proverbs eleven nine. Proverbs 12, 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. You see the difference? One can be like getting stabbed, like living in the house with boys, and one voice brings healing. It says in verse 19 of Proverbs 12, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Proverbs 13, verse three says, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, 
And he who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Have you ever experienced that? You talk too much, you don't think enough about what you say before you say it, you send off that email before you really thought about it, right? It says, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. It not only talks about the power of what we have to say or what we speak, the power of our words, but Proverbs also talks about the implications of what we listen to or what we allow to be said to us. Proverbs chapter 17 verse 4 says, an evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. There's a warning in the book of Proverbs not only about being people with mischievous tongues and lying lips, but also entertaining those. I think sometimes we sort of uh, discount the idea that it it doesn't really matter what other people say. What matters is what we say. Well, the, the book of Proverbs says that's not true, that we become complicit when we entertain the mischievous tongue of other people. In fact, on that note, Proverbs 18.8 says, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. The words of a whisperer. What's it talking about? You guys know that, right? You know how good it feels to get a little piece of gossip. How nice it is to hear a little bit of something, something that nobody else has heard or to learn about something that's going on with somebody else. Somebody posts something on Facebook or somebody writes something on Twitter or you're standing around the water cooler at work and they go, did you hear about what happened with this person or that person? It says the whispers of other people are like delicious morsels. It's like eating corn dogs at a camp in Montana for two weeks, right? No, it's not like that at all. It's not, let me just tell you, it's not like that. Eating a lot of corn dogs in Montana is not delicious. It says that we like to hear the whispers of other people. I mean, so many channels on our news stations are perpetuated by this whispering, by a little bit of gossip or a little photograph that was taken here or there, a little bit of a rumor. We love those delicious morsels that are spoken, but they're damaging to us. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. A word fitly spoken. What's that talking about? It's talking not, not only about a good word, something good that's spoken, but about the context in which it's said. Apples of gold in settings of silver. And theologians have a lot of disagreement. I've looked at several interpretations of that verse this week. Some of them will say, well, he can't really be talking about actual golden apples because they didn't have those during the time that this was written in this particular region. So he must be talking about oranges or pine. I don't care about that, right? I don't care if it's a gold. Some people will say uh, here when he says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver that he must be talking about jewelry. Like a beautiful pair of earrings or a beautiful necklace that has a a golden apple in a setting of silver. Or that it might be a silver bowl or that it might actually even be pointing towards a beautiful painting. That, That idea of a setting of silver might be a frame, a picture of an apple, right? A picture of a golden apple in a frame of silver. No matter how you interpret the verse, no matter whether you think it's actual fruit or you think it's jewelry or you think it's a painting or whatever, the reality is the same. That a word, a good word, spoken at the right time, in the right way, in the right place, a word that's been considered and is executed with wisdom is like something beautiful or something delicious in a perfect setting, right? A silver bowl or a silver earring, right? A silver frame. It's not only the right thing, but it's put in the right place. A word fitly spoken. Look at what else it says in Proverbs 25, following on. Uh, It says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Verse 12, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. That those who will listen to wise reproof 
See it like ornamentation, like gold jewelry. And then listen to this in verse 13. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. Be nice to have a little bit of cold snow right about now, wouldn't it? Yeah, wouldn't you like that? I got back from Montana last night and stepped out of the LA airport to like hot wind. And I'm like, what did you guys do to my city while I was gone? Thanks very much. But it says in 13, like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. That a messenger, someone who carries a message and does so, uses his voice, uses his speech to carry a message is refreshing to those who send him. The the first thing you gotta think about when you read Proverbs 25, 13 is the Lord Jesus, right? The greatest messenger, the greatest message ever spoken. It says in John 1, Right, That in the beginning was the word. It talks about Jesus as the very voice of God, the very speech of God. That Jesus was the logos or the word of God. He was with God and he was God. And then it says in John 1.14 that that word of God, the clearest thing, the clearest articulation that God has ever made in the person of Christ became flesh in the incarnation. How refreshing is the messenger that is the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to take the sin of the world, who comes bearing the message That even though you and I are broken in our sin, we're dead where we sit. That God loves us and he knows us. He created us with a purpose. That Jesus came to the earth in the incarnation to take the sin of mankind upon himself. He dies on the cross and sheds his blood. He rises from the dead having paid the penalty of sin and then extending by his grace resurrection life to us. You want to talk about a refreshing message and a refreshing messenger. There is no greater message that God has ever sent. Hebrews 1.1, which we studied about a year ago, Hebrews 1.1 says, in the past, God spoke through all kinds of different things. God spoke through various and sundry means, but now he has spoken to us through his son. And so when I read Proverbs 25.13, and it says, like cold snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. It's refreshing to God the Father. That's why God the Father would look at the son and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, Right? This is my messenger. This is my ambassador. And it's significant then that in John 17, Jesus invites us into his same mission to take on his same message, to have his same purpose as ambassadors. We see that all throughout the New Testament, that you and I have the opportunity to bless God by being messengers to others, that our words have power. All throughout the book of Proverbs, it says again, you need to consider what you say. You need to consider how you say it and where you say it and when you say it. And so it behooves us to look at what the scriptures say. Now, there are lots of these verses. As you've already seen, I can go through a bunch of them. But what we see is is that our words matter. And James 3 gives us some very clear picture of why our words matter and the influence that they can have. We heard a little bit about that last week, right? We heard a little bit last week when Jeff was teaching about his friend Bruce. If you were in the service last week, you may remember the illustration But Jeff had been praying that God would give him a sign, that God would speak to him, right? And he got nothing but silence, right? He just heard the crickets chirping. And then all of a sudden, after a couple of weeks, his friend Bruce comes and says, I feel really bad about this, but, uh, you know, God put it on my heart like two weeks ago that I was supposed to come and pray with you and talk with you, and I I haven't done it. I just kept putting it off and shutting him down, and I'm I'm just, I need to be obedient to God, and so I'm here to, to pray with you. And Jeff, as he relayed the story in his message last week, he says he he broke down in tears because here was the message from God that he'd been praying for that had been delayed. Why? Because the messenger didn't recognize the great value that he had in speaking into the life of other people. Our words have power. And we, we see that. We know it. 
No, at no other time in human history has there been so much overabundance of talk, right? There's so many words and so much speech. Everybody's saying every little thing that pops into their head on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and whatever that we sometimes become saturated with words. Maybe you get to the place where you go, I don't want to hear any more words. I don't want to hear any more talking. I don't want to hear anybody else's voice. But in that moment, we, we miss out on the reality that our speech is a gift from God. That in the same way that he shapes and molds, in the same way that he gives life, that we created in his image have the opportunity to be life bringers also. We don't create from nothing like God did, but we have the ability to have a timely voice, a word fitly spoken like a golden apple in a setting of silver. So what do you do with your words? What do you do with your, I mean, it's worth even just, you know, taking the time this morning to just ask the question, think about your words this morning, right? It's, uh, it's 1020, so some of you have been up for 20 minutes, and uh, maybe some of you are just about to go right back to sleep, but well, you've had a couple of hours probably, right? What is your speech, what have your words declared about you already this morning? What was your breakfast conversation like around the table? What was the conversation like with you and your kids while you were trying to get them to put their pants on this morning, right? What was the conversation like in the car? I'll tell you, last night, like I said, we flew into, uh, we flew into Montana, or we flew into LA from Montana by the way of Salt Lake. We'd been traveling all day, basically, and uh, we get into LA last night late, and I felt so bad. We, we had parked in one of those long-term parking lots, you know, and you have to get a shuttle from LAX to take you to the long-term lot. So the shuttle picks us up. It's me and my whole family in this little van, or like a bu- shuttle bus thing, and there's one other lady in the van, um, and my kids, you guys, were fried. You want to talk about words not fittingly spoken. We were an example of that in the car. Like, my kids are fighting about everything. They're fighting about, you know, you stepped on my shoes. Well, I did that because you wouldn't let me sit by the window on the plane. Well, I did that because last time you didn't let me have the crackers. You made me have the cookies. It's just like this ugly fight. And I, the, that other lady that wasn't a part of our family and me were very bothered by it, you know? And I just kept, I kept locking eyes with her as if to say, this lady needs to get her kids under control, you know? She has too many kids, first of all, and what are they doing on this shuttle bus with us, right? No, I I mean, if you wanted to get a good picture of the danger and the damage of words, you should have ridden on that shuttle bus. We should get a shuttle bus. I'll just let you ride around with me and my family for a little while, right? What has your conversation been like this morning? What has your speech been like this morning? What have you posted on the internet this morning? It isn't just about audible speech. It's about our communication. What is your communication crafting and forming? What are you shaping in our world? Because in the image of God, your words have formative power. They have creative power. How are you using the image of God? What is your speech creating or what is it destroying? James chapter three gives us some great insight, I think. In James three, it says this, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his own body. I've heard this text quoted and people go, oh yeah, you know, teachers and preachers, they have a greater weight of responsibility and authority. You don't want to do that lightly. And it's true. That is kind of what it's saying, right? That for somebody who's got a calling like mine, for somebody who's been gifted the way I am to teach and preach the Bible, I have to take that responsibility very seriously. And so do you. Those of you who've been called to teach, there, there is an accountability upon us as we teach, We'll be accountable for that. There's a great weight of responsibility. 
But many times when that verse is quoted, what it's, what it's quoted as is a way to sort of discount the fact that all of us are teachers, right? That in one way or another, every one of us in the room is teaching something. We're teaching with our words, we're teaching with our actions, we're teaching with what we write and what we post and where we go and how we go there, right? All of us are teachers. It's not just the professional teachers, if you will. It's not just the ones that have a calling of God to preach God's word upon which this greater responsibility comes. The reality is that all of us are teaching all the time. And you have to take that weight, you have to take that responsibility seriously and consider your speech. Consider what you're doing with your tongue. The life you're giving or the life you're draining. He says, we all stumble in many ways. It's true. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now he's going to give us three quick illustrations of the way in which our tongue shapes and guides the entirety of the rest of our life. The first picture he gives here is of a bridle. He says, uh, he says, if you can control your ways, it's like a bridle. You're able to bridle this whole body. Verse three, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Verse four, look at the ships also. Now he's gonna talk about a rudder. He talks about a bridle in a bit. Now he's gonna talk about a rudder. He says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Wow. You think he wants us to take this seriously? Do you think he wants us to feel the gravity of it? He certainly does. He says our tongue is like a bitten bridle. It's like the rudder on a ship. It's like a, a spark that lights and ignites a forest fire. That's the power of the tongue. That's the power of our speech. But laden in there is also some guidance and some direction because the reality is you can control a horse and you can steer a ship and you can control fire if you're wise and if you're cautious and if you're capable. The problem becomes on a ship when you don't pay attention to what the rudder's capable of. The problem with a horse becomes when you don't pay attention to what the bit and the bridle are capable of. If you try and grab a horse around the neck and make it go someplace, if you have horses or if you've been with them, it's not going anywhere. It's bigger than you and it will prove that really quick, right? If you try and move a ship by the strength of your own will or just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and just sort of make the ship go, you grab it around the mast and you try and pull it, the ship's not going to move. You have to pay attention to the way in which the ship is steered to the way in which the horse is guided. And what the writer in James is saying is that our tongue has the ability to guide and steer and direct the entirety of our life. What he's saying is that as goes our speech, so goes the rest of our bodies. So goes the rest of our lives. Now that might not be intuitive to you. You might, you might go, well, I don't know if that's true. What he's saying here is not just, you know, some people have looked at this passage and they've said, well, it's just kind of a from the greater to the lesser, you know? Like, if you can control your tongue, you should be able to control your entire body. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when you get your tongue under control, the rest of your life will follow in order. That your tongue, your speech, 
What you choose to do with that guides the rest of who you are. I think many of us are trying to live spiritual lives or good lives. We're trying to live lives of spiritual discipline and faithfulness and we're trying to do it by our own brute strength. We're trying to grab our life around the mast or to grab the horse around the neck and just sort of force it into holiness or to just force it into goodness or to force it into blessing. But that isn't the way our lives are steered. According to James 3, the way our lives are steered is by first considering the impact of this tiny little tongue and its ability to steer the course of our lives. Look what else it says here in James chapter 3. He says in verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, they can all be tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who were made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. He says, how crazy is it? How crazy is it that we, we will glorify God, we'll worship God and praise him, and then it, with the very same tongue and with the very same mouth, we'll curse one another. We'll bite each other. We'll tear each other down, right? That very same mouth. It's like saying, oh, I love Picasso, but his paintings are crap right? Doesn't make any sense. He says, how can that come out of the same mouth? Blessings and curses. But I guarantee you that where you sit this morning, you can remember times in your life where people have used their voice, they've used their speech to wreck you. People who've called you stupid or they've called you ignorant or they've said that your thoughts and feelings are of no consequence or that you're worthless or that you're ugly or that you're unwanted or whatever. We get these people speaking into us and they wreck us with their voices. We've all been wrecked by the voices of other people. And even if you haven't been wrecked by the individual voices of others, we get wrecked by the voices of our culture who are constantly asking us and compelling us to compare ourselves to what they value. Now, the speech of our world can sometimes be destructive, like a fire, big fire set, apart, set on fire by a tiny little spark. But the same thing is true with life. We have the opportunity to bless. I would guess that in the same heartbeat where you can think about those who have cursed you or who have impacted you, who have weighed you down with their words, you probably also can think about conversations that have been life-giving to you, conversations that have brought joy, conversations that have brought hope, moments where you sat with somebody and they looked into your eyes and they said, you are valuable and what you think matters to me and I love you and I care about you. You're uniquely created by God. I want to hear more of what you have have to say, right? And when somebody speaks life into you, it's like God saying, let there be light. It's new creation in us, right? New hope and new light and new motivation. We have the power to speak life and death into other people. In fact, it says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, Proverbs 18, 21 says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 10, he says, he called all the people to him and said to them, hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. The disciples came and said to him, do you know uh, that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying, right? I love, I love this, right? The disciples were like, Jesus, come here. Can we talk to you for a second? When you say stuff like that, it really hurts the Pharisees' feelings, right? You made them feel bad. They don't like what you've had to say. You're discounting their opinions, whatever. And here's Jesus' answer. It's really funny, verse 13. Jesus answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. 
right? Oh, okay, well, okay, that answers that, right? Here's what Jesus says next in verse 13, or excuse me, 15. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. We don't understand. Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? By the way, my grandmother would not like Jesus talking like this, right? She does not like bathroom humor at all. And he says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The Pharisees were up in arms about the fact that the, the disciples of Jesus and Jesus himself had not been following their explicit rules about what to eat and when to eat and whether your hands were washed and whatever. And Jesus goes, it's not about what you put into your body that you need to be concerned about. It's what's coming out of it. Look at your words. Look at what is produced out of your heart. It's what comes out of you that, that indicates what's going on with your heart. You want to know what's going on with your heart this morning? Listen to what you've said. You want to do a little EKG reading on your spiritual heart this morning? Just play back the tapes of what you've said and what you've typed. Think about what you've communicated with your facial expressions this last week. That's the indicator of your heart health. Jesus says it's not about what you eat and whether your hands are washed when you eat it. It's about what's comes, coming out of you. We've all had people that have spoken life into us. I had a, a conversation. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm here this morning, I had a conversation with, uh, with a guy at Hume Lake back in the day. This was in 97. And I told this guy at Hume Lake, I was like, hey, someday I would love to work on staff at Hume. I'd love to, I could write songs and I could do publishing, music publishing. I could hire bands. I could write original music and scores. I could do, I mean, I'd just be like the camp musician, right? Because at the time, I was the lead singer in a band and we had a record contract and I felt like music is what, what God was gonna do with me my whole life, you know? And this guy sitting across the table from me, he looks at me and he goes, he says, someday we'll hire you at Hume, but when we do, uh, we're not gonna hire you to do music, which was a little weird because that was like my whole life, you know? And he goes, no, he says, uh, he says, when we hire you, we'll hire you to teach and to preach because that's your gift. He says, you're using music to do that, but you use music, you're using rock music like other people use puppets or flannel graph or whatever. You're using it as a way to get to the message. And he's like, but when we hire you, we're gonna clear that middleman out because you've got a teaching gift and a preaching gift and that's what we wanna isolate. I was ticked, right? He spoke this to me and over me and I was furious because it felt like, hey, dude, do you know that I, like, I have a record contract? Like, don't say my music's not good, right? But what did he do? He spoke prophetically over me and his words created something that's end result is right here, what I'm doing in this moment. I do very little, if any, music these days in my life. I can do it, but it's not my gifting. It's not my calling. My calling is this, because one guy took the time to speak truth into my life. He used his tongue and his voice to create in me. Do you use your voice prophetically? What's coming out of you? Do you use your voice to speak truth and life into other people? Back to James chapter three, it says this. It says, with it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in his likeness. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. If the only thing that's coming out of your life is gossip and hatred and jealousy and envy and vitriol and anger and bitterness, guess what? That means your heart is messed up, right? 
That is the test. Yes, you can worship God, but Jesus himself says, you, you, you know, you, you come near me with your mouth and your lips, but your hearts are far away. It's possible to simulate worship. You get that, right? It's possible to sort of put on the motion. All of us know how to look religious. That's not what God's after. What God's after is a healthy heart. And you want to know whether your heart is healthy? Listen to what your voice has said. Listen to the speech that's coming out of you. If we control our tongues, we can keep our whole life in check. James sees an intimate connection between the two. To conquer one is to conquer the other. Brennan Manning says, in every encounter, we either give life or we drain it. There is no neutral exchange. Let me say that again. This is Manning, who's with Jesus now. Manning said in one of his books, in every encounter, we either give life or we drain it, there is no neutral exchange. What does that mean? That every conversation, every interaction, every Twitter post, right? Every Vine, every Facebook, all of those will either give life or they'll take it away. I I got off Facebook several years ago because I felt like it was taking away my life. And my wife continues to read me stuff on Facebook. I'm like, there's a reason why I quit reading that, right? Stop reading it to me, I don't wanna know. I don't wanna know the ugly stuff that people are saying on Facebook. That's why I got out of there, right? It's a nice way to connect with other people, but are you using that vehicle for life or for death? The tongue is a vehicle for life or for death. Ephesians 4 says it like this. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, it says, let no no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I like that description. It says, don't let anything corrupting come out of your mouth. Don't let anything that's gonna wreck other people or ruin them or hurt them or bring despair or sorrow or grief upon them. He says, but instead of corrupting talk, speak that which builds up. Life-giving speech. You know, the very same intellect that we use to assess other people to know what their weaknesses are so that we can tear them down. The very same part of our mind and our brain that we use to look at other people and figure out their weaknesses so that we can stand on their backs, so that we can tear them down, so that we can gossip about them, so that we can whisper these delicious morsels to others. That same ability to assess someone else could just as easily help us to assess the places where we can build them up to recognize their weaknesses, to recognize the places where they're hurting, to recognize the places where they're broken or they're alone or they're sorrowful and to fortify those positions, right? I think many times we look into the life of other people and we start trying to find ways to poke holes in their boat so it'll sink when instead we want to look at the lives of other people and figure out how we can attach hot air balloons to their boat so it'll fly higher, right? Does your speech bring buoyancy to other people or are you poking holes in their ship? He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as, good, as is good for building up, as fits the occasion. I like that, as fits the occasion. I don't always do this, but there is a, a great book called, um, I wrote it because I, I blanked on it. I just read it this last week. Uh, actually by Dr. Muehlhoff, who attends our church. Um, he wrote this book called I Beg to Differ. And in it, he, he writes, and you should read it, but in it, he writes that in every conversation, we have to assess a variety of things. He says, when you're talking about fitting the occasion, you have to think about, is this the right time and place for this conversation? Is this necessary? Is what I'm about to say necessary? Or am I just talking to hear myself talk? In every conversation, we have to assess our motivation. Why do I want to say this? Why do I want to say it? Is it necessary? Is this the right time and place? Can it be received well by the person I'm talking to? I don't know that that's a consideration we take in very often. To look at somebody else and go, are they in a spot where they can hear this from me? 
Do I have the kind of relationship with them that they'll be able to receive it, that it'll be life-giving and not destructive? That in every conversation we're assessing, we're listening first and paying attention to figure out whether what we want to say fits the occasion. Is it necessary? Why do I want to say it? Is this the time and the place? Can it be received well? Am I in a relationship? And it says here in Ephesians 4.29, you should only speak that which is building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Does your speech give grace to those who hear? Grace, by the way, is undeserved, unearned favor or kindness. Is that what your speech gives to other people? According to Ephesians 4, the opposite of being gracious in your speech, giving grace to those who hear, is to grieve the Holy Spirit, right? It says in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. But be kind to one another. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing we should have to say, right? Be nice. Your voice can bring life. Or your voice can bring death. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You and I, we're all made in the image of God. We have the opportunity to speak into existence life or death. But we have to be mindful. We have to be conscientious. We have to think about how it is we're steering the ship of our life with this tiny little tongue that's in our mouths. What do we do with it? I have a, a buddy at uh, Arbor Road Church where I, where I worked at before, and uh, he came to me one Sunday, and he goes, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that most of the time, the ugliest stuff that comes out of me is the stuff that comes out of me when I'm in L.A. traffic, right? People cutting me off, people not using their turn signals, you know, people who try and merge without letting, you know, people who drive on the, on the, the shoulder. He's like, it just makes me crazy. I just get insane. And he's like, but I've been trying to think about how to bridle my tongue and how to change my heart, how to use it for building up. And he said, so I asked God, will you let me know who it is that you want me to pray a blessing? over. And the way I want you to indicate to me who it is that I'm supposed to pray a blessing over is by, God, I want you to have those be the people that cut me off. The people that run the red lights, I want you to indicate to me that those are the people who need a prayer of blessing by having them drive on the shoulder, by having them fail to use their turn signal, by having them go 20 miles an hour on the on-ramp or whatever. And when you point them out to me that way, God, I'll pray blessing over them. I will learn to use my power of speech for life instead of death. What are the ways in which you and I can take this incredible gift, the gift of speech, and we can use it to bring life to the world around us? Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would move in us as a church and move in us as families, move in us as individuals, that we would harness the tongue No man can tame it. No man can utterly control it. But by your power, God, the tongue can be bridled and it can steer the course of our lives, the rest of our actions. Help us to use the power of speech that you have given to us for the sake of your goodness and your grace and not for pain and sorrow and death. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.